Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What does family mean to you? For the folks on this week's show, when it comes to food, family means everything. Ritiba Hagazi is a perfect example of that. The bright, ambitious teenager learned how to love people through food from her father, Olive. They share that love with the world every time their food truck, Situ's Kitchen, pulls up. They're here to tell us all about it. And then Jared Zarang of Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse perpetuates generational old food love at the Laplace Smokehouse. After all, it was the only place his grandmother would buy her on Dewey. Then, we contemplate a world without poor boys when we speak with Keepers of the Flame, John, and his son, Jason Gendusa. The Gendusa family bakery has been inextricably tied to that famous New Orleans sandwich since 1929. We're celebrating the bakery centennial by hearing the story of how it all began. So call up your grandma on them. We're serving up some family-style food love on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name's Ratiba Hagazi. I am Khalid, her father. As a small child growing up in New Orleans, Ratiba Hagazi fell in love with all things food something she comes by naturally. Her father is Khalid Hagazi, a local poet and writer who owns the Egyptian import shop Pharaoh's Cave in the French Quarter. Khalid developed his passion for cooking while growing up in Egypt. When he's not whipping up something for friends and family at home, he's sharing his talents at his pop-up, Situ's Kitchen. Following in her father's footsteps, Ratiba refined her skills in the kitchen very quickly. At the age of just nine, she appeared as a contestant on the Food Network show, Chopped Junior. And finally, here's nine-year-old Ratiba Hagazi. I'm in a fourth grade, and I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. I pretty much learned to cook from my dad. He's from Egypt. I like Mediterranean food, and I also like New Orleans food. Creating a dish that paired together Egyptian and New Orleans flavors, she won over the judges and ultimately won the competition. Ratiba Hagazi, you are the Chopped Junior Champion. The cash prize, $10,000, but there's also a highly coveted Chopped Junior Chef's Coat. Now in high school, Ratiba is enrolled in the culinary program at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And when she's not learning, you can find her alongside her dad at Situ's Kitchen. 
Both father and daughter joined us in the studio to share their story. Ritiba, long before you won Chop Junior, I understand that you were sort of doing your own cooking shows in your imagination. This was something you had been dreaming of. Yes, I loved cooking shows and I just I had always dreamed of being on one so I would I would take like my mom's computer and go on photo booth and like film myself mixing random things and I read cookbooks before I went to sleep uh-huh. like as a bedtime story since she was four she always have us in the backyard uh, me and her mom and other friends we will sit down and she will serve us a fake food she will take our orders and she will discuss the menu with us and we have to sit there for hours. And that was her favorite game. The funniest part was like arguing about the menu. It's like you cannot have eggplant today because it's not the time. It's not the season or it's expensive. You are not going to be able to pay for it. So things like that when she was four years old. What happened before she was four to ignite this passion? Where, we, where we did you did, see We it? didn't know. Like <laughs> su- suddenly she's become a possessed with the food. Remember, she before CHOP, we used to go and buy stuff for her and, like, recipes that unheard of. She tried to put, like, sweet and sour together in a way that's kind of shocking to us. But she was a little child, so we didn't really, like, stop her from doing that. What do you think, Ritiba? Where did this come from? I think it was a mix of things. So first, he definitely—I grew up baking and cooking with him— He showed me all the recipes. I just was always kind of into helping him out in the kitchen, even if it was just like stirring some flour or something in a bowl. No, she was there in the kitchen to just to put her hand in the sugar. (laughs) She was there for the sugar. Um, So I watched him basically my whole life, and he taught me things. And then also just watching Food Network. When I was about eight, I would watch the Food Network on the plane TVs when we were going to Egypt. It really inspired me. I, like, started to idolize all the chefs on there. And I got the recipe books, and I started cooking like them. And so I think it was a mix of the both. Of course, we're lucky to be in New Orleans because there's New Orleans is, like, the food is number one thing that's outside, you know. I think part of her learning and education about food, not just me. I mean, yes, I'm in the house, but when we go walk around, like in the French Quarter or walk at any place, you could smell and you could see the food is right there in your face. You know, you walk in the street and you see people doing the crawfish boil. I mean, just that's an experience. I don't think everybody gets to see that. You know, you walk to some place and you see them shucking oyster. I mean, just that's an art. I think it's so beautiful for a kid to see. Anyway, Ratiba, she is lucky to be part of that or to get to that part. Now when we go to our, a new restaurant or a new place and we sit down and try food, we kind of do challenge each other about what's in it. Uh-huh. And 90% she's more right than me. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, we love to play that game where we guess what spices or what ingredients are in there, especially if it's something like we can't really figure out. We'll think about it for a while. <laughs> or something new for us. You know, Khaled, it, you, you have such a wonderful story about how you became a cook yourself. Um, It was because of the time you spent with your mother in her kitchen. How how do you see the effects of your 
Egyptian culture in this food life? In Egyptian culture, we have something very unique. If you want to show somebody affection, you cook for them. And I remember when I was dating her mom, uh, we were brother and sister for five or six years. Really good friends, you know. She's a poet, and we talk about art and poetry, go watch movies, do reading. But when things start to shift, I think, and I notice if I look back into my relationship with her, my food started to take a different shift. You know, I start to introduce her to more meat. She was vegetarian. And when I start to bring the meat into the table, that was like a hint of, you know, something being changed, you know. I think we cook with love, and that's we show affection through food. And that's how, like, you know, how much energy, how much love we put in preparing the meal and as a message to tell you, like, you know, we love you or we care about you. And and that's still happening until now, you know. Um, My mom always says that food is our love language. So if someone... Uh, something bad happened or something, we'll cook for people. Or, like, I'm always making birthday cakes for my friends. I'll always show up with a big cake. I just kind of blend the two cultures together in my head and just kind of make dishes and stuff like that. But, I mean, obviously, the two places are very different, especially food-wise. But when I think about it, they also are, like, pretty similar. In what ways? Like, one time I was looking through this magazine and... I saw, like, top 10 food places, and number one and number two were, number one was New Orleans, number two was Cairo. Um, Interesting. I know. And so then I started to think about it, and just, like, how people express, like, creativity and stuff through food um, happens in both cultures, and, you know, like he said, when you're walking around places and you smell things, like... When we go to other places, you, you that doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Like strong flavors and stuff, especially spices. Today, you are part of that very special experience at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. Tell me about your culinary education there and how it is changing your perspective on food. Um, I really love being there, first of all. I think it's the only place in New Orleans where I could have gotten that sort of education for culinary. My mom works there in the creative writing department, and so that's how I knew about it. And so ever since I was little, and they had the culinary department, which only, I think, was about 10 years ago, um, I wanted to go there. And I would go in the kitchen, and I would look around, and it's like the most professional kitchen I've ever seen. I'd always daydreamed about going there. But now that I actually do, it's so much better than I, like, ever expected. And I'm learning so much, like, to the point where I can teach him when I come home. Like, that's not how you cut that. Like, let me show you this. Or this is how you make a certain type of sauce. So, Ritiba, in an interview following your Chop Junior win, you actually mentioned that one of your dreams was to have a food truck with your dad. So tell me about that, Colin. I think she is uh, uh, really, like, adventurous with food. And I think when she, since she was little, like, she always loved going to food trucks. And food trucks to her, like, you know, her going, her outing, you know. Yeah. And I think that's where she got the idea. 
I wasn't ready to do a food truck because knowing how much responsibility and how much work you put into it. But now, since ever since you become a little bit more responsible chef and uh, someone that's approaching the food is not just for fun, not in, not in a kiddish way, like she's become more serious about it, I start to consider it. I start to really think about it. And that's where when the idea of the Situs Kitchen, the pop-up that we are doing, that when I said yes. Well, Ratiba, what's your job on the food truck? Tell me about your food truck career. Hmm. Well, first of all, I think do think it started a while ago, but I think one thing that inspired me with the food truck is when we were in New York, there was four chopped. There was a lot of food trucks, and I think we tried some food, and then we like got into pop-ups and stuff. So I love helping him make menus and seeing what's the easiest or like most convenient food to have. Uh, like you can't have, you know, a big messy meal from a food truck because then you're kind of eating it and standing. But I help him, like, make the menu, and I do help him cook, and I help him advertise, too. Whenever I'm at school and I have the opportunity, I'm like, well, my dad has a pop-up, actually. Well, we have a pop-up, not my dad. Tell me about your long-range goals. Um, Well, my chefs always say that once you graduate from NOCA, or even after your first year in NOCA Culinary, you can walk into any restaurant in the world and get a job. And hold your own, that's what they say. And I definitely think that's true. I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I know it's something food-related, obviously. Culinary school, I would love to go to culinary school somewhere that's not America, like Paris or Italy or something. And what do you have to say about this, Dad? What are you hoping for her? I am hoping that she will uh, reach her goals and achieve her dreams. And I'm supporting them. And yes, I would love to go with her, to follow her to Paris or Italy. (laughs) Uh, You know, I would like to have her taste all the food around the world because it's a beautiful experience and it's great to be sharing the love and sharing the knowledge around the world. Well, I am so thrilled that we had this opportunity to meet you at this particularly auspicious time in your life. And I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. That was Khalid and Ratiba Hagazi, New Orleans' father and daughter with a passion for food. Coming up next, we speak with Chef Jared Zerang of Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse in Laplace. His new book is filled with family history and recipes. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content 
for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. My name is Jared Zarang of Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse, and my new book is Southern and Smoked, Cajun Cooking Through the Seasons. Between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, spanning both banks of the Mississippi, is a region of Acadiana known as the River Parishes. Born into a family with deep roots there, Chef Jared Zarang grew up immersed in Cajun cooking traditions, traditions that he celebrates and preserves today at Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse in Laplace. The Smokehouse has been an institution on the Cajun coast since the 1950s, a place where Jared and his grandmother routinely shopped for that all-important andouille sausage when he was a kid. When the chef acquired the business in 2016, he made sure to keep the Jacobs family recipes authentic, in part because of the vital role they played in his own family's food traditions. Today, Jared's out with a new book, Southern and Smoked, Cajun Cooking Through the Seasons. It's filled with delicious family history and recipes, and was a long time in the making. How do I know? Before we jump into that conversation, allow me to take you back about 10 years. You see, my friend Jared was an early guest on Louisiana Eats, and when he joined us back then, he brought along a very special item to share. Well, you brought a special treat to show me, and so what's in that box? The box is my grandmother's recipes, and some are from her, and some are from her brother, who was a, an amazing cook as well. So what, what are some of the treasures you found in the box? Um, I found a recipe on three very small pieces of paper, and it's her recipe for the crawfish bisque. Which crawfish is, bisque? Yes, which is something that we cook every year, but we've always guessed at how she made it. We'd always cooked by smell and taste and if the consistency was right and everything. When she's tasted it in the past, she's always approved. But I'm glad to have her actual copy. There's no restaurant that can replicate grandma's cooking. Who 
knows what I said to get you into the studio, but you must have told me about your grandmother's recipe box. Yeah. Those recipes were so inspiring to me. I told you to put them in a book, and now you did. It was because of you <laughs> telling me to, to go ahead and write a book. That's why it's here. Well, I loved the way you divided your book up into the seasons. Why was this important to you? It was important because working in the restaurant business in New Orleans, um, I would see tourists come in and want things out of season, and crawfish especially. I also see that uh, people that had these huge, beautiful gardens. I mean, I I see people growing things all the time, and um, then they don't know what to do with the stuff in their garden, you know? So they'll they'll do the same thing over and over again until they're sick of it. And um, I wanted to put a few alternative recipes for people to process the bounty of their, you know, garden. Like what? Uh, I have a cauliflower gratin in here, um, Parmesan mashed turnips, and then uh, soups with Creole tomatoes and with sweet potatoes with smoked meats. And, you know, just I tried to take everything that we grow year round here and do a recipe with it. Well, you are a great inventive cook, and so I could go through and pick out some of the recipes that I knew just sprang from your brain, but the bulk of this book is really a tribute to your forebears and what they've been cooking and eating for generations. Absolutely. Tell me about your German Cajun family and your place in all this. Yeah, so in researching this book, I mean, I I grew up thinking that my family was German and that we were from South Louisiana and that um, there were also Cajuns. And um, researching this book and talking to local historians, I realized that Acadians and uh, Germans were all from basically the same area of France that was being disputed over hundreds of years. Oh, that Alsace-Lorraine region that went back and forth and back and forth between France and Germany. In 1721, um, that's when the first Germans came from the, you know, same spot that the Acadians came from from and went to Canada, you know, years before. So you see that in the names that are traced back to both of those groups. You know, my great-grandfather, Philip Chauvin, grew up in Chauvin, Louisiana until... His family died of yellow fever, and then he moved to the River Parishes. What's more French than, you know, Chauvin? I would like you to tell me about your mama, Belle. And um, she must have been something else. And there's one of her recipes in the book that particularly caught my attention. I guess it has to have been a German idea to combine white beans and potatoes. Not two things I normally think of together. Oh, the white bean soup is uh, something she'd make huge batches of with a big bag of bunny bread that had been toasted in the oven with oil. So it made like these huge croutons. And um, she'd send one to each of her kids and for us to have for dinner. It is white beans with potatoes and there's a little bit of like tomato paste in there as well. And that's that stemmed from the fact that she cooked white beans every week. She didn't do the red bean thing, but she cooked white beans every week, and she would cook huge batches. So to change it up sometimes, she would make the soup with the potatoes and stuff, especially in the winter and stuff, because it's a very thick and hearty soup that 
sticks to your bones. I bet it does, because really, beans and potatoes, yeah, and what was, a combo. And she was cooking for the sugarcane farmers. So, you know, my grandfather, that's what they did. So that was something that would keep them warm in the winter. Let's talk about Chadron, C-H-A-D-R-O-N. Chadron. It's a the thistle that grows in the spring. And, um, you know, they grow up to like five feet tall. And they're, <laughs> um, you don't want to run into one because uh, they're very painful. As kids in South Louisiana, I mean, we were always playing in the ditch or, um, you know, climbing a tree or riding bikes or something like that. And um, when banished from the house um, in the summertime or in the spring, we would go out and cut the largest ones we could find as something to fill our time. Or in doing that, we found out um, that the smaller ones were actually tasty. So we would start cutting those and bringing those home for our moms to uh, prepare. (laughs) Were there any other surprising things that you all ate that you don't think other people did much? You know, all the pork products that are so huge today, um, hoghead cheese and cracklins and all those things that we that we ate as kids and uh, or we made as kids with our families. And now today every restaurant has, you know, something with cracklin or um, boudin on the menu, especially in New Orleans or South Louisiana. Um, but that wasn't the case then. You know, it wasn't as commercialized. Jared, tell us about Wayne Jacobs. Wayne Jacobs was um, started by Mr. Nat Jacob in 1950 on April 1st. And it's been passed through a few owners, and um, we've had it since 2016. And every owner has kept true to the original recipes and the old-fashioned way of doing things. I mean, we, we do everything from getting the wood on my dad's farm um, and, you know, splitting it and curing it and all that to making the fires to stuffing the sausage and butchering the meat and everything. And it, we, we do it all in the very time-consuming but traditional way. When you walk in the door, the first thing you'll get is the scent of smoked meats. And it'll hit you in the face right when you walk in the door. You'll see people, you know, packing meats. You'll see a butcher. You'll see local people, friendly, you know, people that have been coming there for years. So I think that it's kind of like if you walk in there the right time, you'll see what a a real local heritage place is all about. Why was it important to you to acquire Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse? It was important to me because I've seen generations, including my own grandmother, and shopping with her there in the 80s. Um, that's the only place that she would buy her meats from. And I see that every day, that um, customers coming in being the third generation to shop there. And they swear by it, and they wouldn't go anywhere else. And, um, and you know, if we're out that day, then they'll wait. A, you know, they'll wait a day or two. And it's it's really humbling to see that um, people think that highly of a product and they appreciate what we're doing. And it's important to me. The reason why I got into this business was to help celebrate and preserve some of the food traditions of South Louisiana. And what a better way to do that than to try to take a product like Wayne Jacobs and our brand like Wayne Jacobs and try to move it forward 
into the future. Jared, how long have you known that food was going to be your life? How, how did this start for you? I think it started after Katrina. I saw so many people losing the recipes. I saw so many restaurants closing and, you know, people were just tired and and they were done with it. They were hanging up their hats after Katrina. And I could see like, you know, these traditions going by the wayside as well. And, uh, and I saw it again with Ida, you know, so after 16 years of doing this, I, I see, you know, that there are things that like outside forces that will kind of, you know, make some of these traditions go away unless there are younger people that are willing to take them up and keep them going or try to reinvent them or celebrate them. We are so far removed from, and that's another reason why I wanted to do, you know, seasonal cookbook, but we're so far removed from where our food comes from that we don't think those chicken nuggets once had bones, you know, and feathers and and feathers. (laughs) And, you know, and the same thing with the pig, you know, we used to raise 4-H pigs and we had one a year, you know, from like, you know, July to February is when we raise those pigs. And it takes that long for a pig to reach maturity, you know, so you don't want to just throw away meat. You want to use things in a thoughtful way, you know, whether it, whether if it's in a stock or if it's fried up or if it's um, made into sausage or something like that. Well, at Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse, the process of making sausage is a beautiful thing. You know, people <laughs> always make that joke. Oh, don't ask them how they make the sausage. Yeah. At Wayne Jacobs, it's a thing of beauty. And we're proud to tell you and proud to share it with you. Well, and I am always thrilled to have some in my refrigerator or freezer. So thank you, Jared. Thank you for perpetuating these traditions and also for recording them now for posterity. Well, thank you, Poppy, and always thank you for the encouragement. That was Chef Jared Zerang of Wayne Jacobs Smokehouse in Laplace. His new book is Southern and Smoked, Cajun Cooking Through the Seasons. What does eat it to save it mean? Stay tuned, and I'll explain my family's tradition in that regard when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. 
and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What does eat it to save it mean? When I was a little girl, my Cajun French great-grandmother would never tell me to clean my plate in the manner that most Americans tell their children. Instead, Mama would say, Poppy, eat it to save it. Back in the late 90s, when I became involved in Slow Foods International Arc of Taste, a virtual place where endangered foods are recognized, promoted, and preserved, Mama's words truly took on new meaning. Because if we don't eat it and create an interest and a taste for those increasingly rare flavors, recipes, and traditions, how can we save them? Every single guest on today's show is doing their part to save their food culture in a very special way. And Jared's book sets out and succeeds in doing exactly that. What's in danger of disappearing in your family's food traditions? For goodness sake, eat it to save it. It's important. And by the way... It's delicious, too. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Roast beef dressed, extra gravy. Fried shrimp with hot sauce. No matter how you like your poor boy, if you're ordering in New Orleans, it will be made with real New Orleans French bread. And it's very likely that bread originated from one of two poor boy bakeries in the city. One is Leidenheimer Baking Company. The other is John Gendusa Bakery, where the New Orleans poor boy loaf originated. Four generations of the Gendusa family have stewarded the John Gendusa Bakery since its founding in 1922. When third-generation proprietor John Gendusa spoke to Louisiana Eats in 2010, he shared the story of how his grandfather, John Sr., sat down with Benny and Clovis Martin of Martin Brothers Grocers and changed the shape of New Orleans French bread forever. Real French bread is fat in the middle and pointed on the ends. And if you got the skinny end of the sandwich, you didn't get too much of a sandwich. Some people were getting big sandwiches, and some were getting the skinny ends of the sandwich. When my grandfather was a child back in uh, Sicily, he used to stay around the bakeries there. That's why he wanted to become a baker. 
and he remembered they made the long, straight loaves of bread there. So he made some for the uh, Bartons, and they decided they were going to try it, and it worked out great. This innovative new loaf was 40 inches in length and rectangular without the pointy ends. The impressive new sandwich size was sufficient to feed a whole family, which was especially important during the 1929 streetcar strike when Benny and Clovis Martin, former streetcar conductors themselves, promised every striking worker a free meal at Martin's as long as the strike went on. It's said that when one of the strikers would come through the front door of Martin's, the call would ring out, Here comes another one of them poor boys, giving our now famous sandwich its name. Since that time, the loaf that the first John Gendusa fashioned has long been called poor boy bread, or simply French bread. But as John explained to us, that name can be misleading. We call it French bread, but my father was from Italy. We have other bakers from Germany and all over. But we don't have any real Frenchmen in New Orleans who make French bread. So it's, it's a different and unique type of bread only found in New Orleans from the various people that have made it and gotten this loaf together. Maybe it's the water or maybe it's the yeast spores. One thing's for sure, it can only be made in New Orleans. One of the things that, that happened, I wasn't around. My father told me about this. He had two top-notch bakers. They left, went to Baton Rouge, and they were going to make French bread, New Orleans French bread. Never could do it. They tried and tried. They came back, talked to my father. They tried things, tried things, and they never could find out what was wrong and how to make a loaf of bread in Baton Rouge. They would talk with my father. My father would try to help them out. And everything they did, nothing came to pass to make a good loaf of poor boy bread in Baton Rouge. Today, the John Gendusa Bakery is one of only two traditional poor boy bread suppliers still operating in New Orleans. But luckily, John Gendusa's son Jason is working to keep the family tradition alive. Future is my son. My son is in it. He's been in for 10 years now. And he's just about getting ready to learn how to make a loaf of French bread after those 10 years. Daddy's still got to show him a few things, but he's, he's really getting down to the point where he can make a very good loaf of bread. That was John Gendusa speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2010. One decade later, while John has technically retired, he continues to work regularly at the bakery. Jason Gendusa, who grew up immersed in the family business, is now the fourth generation owner. Jason recently joined us by Zoom to talk about growing up in the bakery and why he's decided to carry on the family legacy that his great-grandfather started nearly a century ago. Jason, you and I had a laugh when we first spoke about your dad's famous last words in his Louisiana Eats interview. He said, yeah, he's making some progress. Maybe in another few years, he'll be able to make a good loaf. Well, he'd probably tell you the same thing if you asked him again today. So, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about what it takes to make a good loaf. 
you know what makes it like it, today's a great example you know in the morning when we started production it wasn't blistering hot so you didn't need to put as much ice and you could put more yeast in the dough but as the day went on you have to start adding more ice cutting back on your yeast and um, it's just little details like that that can be the difference between making a good product and something that you might have to throw away. You know, it's very special. I mean, it's an art. You have to change as you go from hour to hour, minute to minute, depending on this wonderful New Orleans weather and humidity. You know, it's not something where somebody can wake up one day and say, I'm going to go open a French bread bakery. You need years of experience and you know, I tell people to this day, I'm still learning. You know, it's not something that you can just jump into. You got to have the enthusiasm and the energy to really put 110% into it every day. I, you know, I took my first vacation in 20 years last year. Um, I'd worked for 20 years straight before I had a day off. Of course, the bakery is totally a family affair because your mom runs the business office, so both your mom and dad have been there on premise for most of your life, huh? Oh, no question. It's definitely one of those things that's kept the family, you know, close because, you know, I, I literally see them every day for the last 20 years working with them and growing up, they would instead of going to summer camp or you know, a babysitter, I'd tag along to the bakery. So, you know, I've been in their back pocket for a long time due to the bakery. I mean, I can just remember as, you know, probably a two or three year old, you know, baby running around the bakery, playing in the flour and literally happened to be swept off before I got in a car to go home because, you know, I was just covered from head to toe in flour. But I loved it, you know, and I think that's where my love of the bakery began was was that early on when did you start working at the bakery on weekends of, of my high school life i would you know get in my car which was a bakery van at the time and um i would go out and hustle business on the weekends and that was kind of my first real life experience in the bakery and you know and then i would help them in the evenings in production so i'm not one that's had many jobs, you know, because, you know, I pretty much worked in the bakery my whole life. So yeah, it's, it's, I started young, that's for sure. Was there ever another career possibility? You know, um, my dad said I couldn't take the bakery until I got a degree from college. I wasn't your typical college guy, you know, on weekends, I would come in town and watch the production crew on Friday and Saturday nights. You know, I mean, I'm talking from eight at night till three in the morning. Every now and then I'd get up in there and do some myself with the outcome not being too well, but that's how you learn, you know? <laughs> I mean, I made a lot of mistakes before I began to catch on. There were maybe forks in the road early on in my college life, but in the end, it always pointed back to taking over the bakery. So you have grown up knowing that it was your great-grandfather who originated that loaf that we all know today as the poor boy. What has that legacy meant to you? When did you start eating a poor boy and connecting <laughs> to the importance of that? You know, it really hit me. I mean, I always thought it was, it was a cool thing because, you know, even being a little kid, people would mention it to me. But it, it really came in the focus after Katrina when 
you know, there were reservations about coming back, not knowing if the city was going to be viable for a bakery. And people would, you know, literally come to the bakery while there was still gutted houses around and saying, you need to rebuild. You're part of New Orleans. You know, we need you back. And um, I think that really hit me. And, and there was a good customer of ours who, who came to the bakery one day while we were still in that question mode. And he, I mean, he was almost in tears. He's like, y'all have to rebuild. He's like, you don't understand what you would, how you affect my business as well. He's like, I need your product to make my product as good as it can be. And I think after that day, you know, my dad and I both sat down and we were like, you know, we got to do this. And um, Katrina really opened my eyes to how deeply rooted we are into New Orleans tradition. How old were you then? Back then, that's uh, about 25 years old. Jason, this is a very, very old school business and a very old school process in every way. As the fourth generation, the future of Gendusa Bakery, how are you staying relevant? Tell me about your vision for the future and why you're where you're at. Yeah, well, I think um, one reason why we're where we are today, you know, being successful and more importantly, still in business is that, you know, I'm hands on with everything, you know, my customers, my product, and they appreciate that. They, they like to know if, you know, there is a problem, they can reach out directly to me. And I also keep in touch with them from time to time just to say, hey, how's everything going? You know, what can we do to make things better? And um, I've built a very good rapport with, with most of my customers, almost to friendship level, you know? I mean, some, some guys nice. will get on the phone and just talk about everything but the bakery and the restaurant business. So um, just moving forward, you know, you, we gotta adjust with the times, especially now. Um, I like to keep my machinery as up to date as possible because that helps out making a good product. Uh, another big thing in our business is employees because, you know, the guys I have now are, are specialized in this. They've been doing it just as long as me, if not longer. And, um, you know, so I like to take care of them because there's not many people walking around in the streets that you can just grab and would know how to do this. Or face it, know how to do it or be willing to do it. Well, that's the thing in July and August, you, you won't, if you hired somebody today, they probably wouldn't be here on Thursday. <laughs> it's just, it's just that how it is. It's, it's, it's tough to handle that heat if you're not used to it. Is there anything that you can think of that you've changed at all since you've taken over the bakery? You know, um, my dad had a saying to me when I was young and coming and up and learning. He's like, if you ever have a problem making bread, Go back to the way your great-grandfather did it. And that's, you know, the way I still do it now. Same formula, same everything. And um, seems to be working well so far. So I'm going to stick with that. Jason, yeah. please give my love to your mom and dad. And thank you so much for having this conversation with us on Louisiana Eats. You're welcome. And, you know, anytime you need me, you can find me. That was Jason Gendusa, fourth generation owner of John Gendusa Bakery and great grandson of the originator of the Poor Boy Loaf. 
founded September 24, 1922, the New Orleans Institution is now celebrating its 100th birthday. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 